Welcome to the confusingly titled Driving Into the Wicked Seven Point Run Principles and Heuristics. And the reason why it's confusing is that Series Six is not over. It's not over, folks. <laughs> it's it, it isn't. We're not done with it, and the debt crisis is not done with us. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, so, as it looks like the 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 fallout of the current debt crisis is mostly going to be in tech in our part of the world we can now look to principles um one of the things i think we have to to do and you wrote a, a series of principles and uh we'll be adding and, and modifying this and while we 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 could do all a dictat and read this like a manifesto i think we're mm. just going to have to go through each kind of step in the logic and break down what we mean and we're going to do one theory, one practice, one theory, one practice is the way to kind of organize this. And I think this will take a bunch of shows, honestly. Yeah, so- sure. I, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. I, as you and I were just talking about, you know, I've been doing this for years and you've been doing it for longer, you know, at least twice as long as me, if not longer than that. And I feel like maybe when I when we began the podcast, I'm, I laid things out more about how I feel about the world, how we theorize the world and the practice that comes out of that. But I, that, even if I did, that was like three, four years ago. And I think it makes sense for me and for us together and for you to to make explicit some of the sort of the first principles and sort of preconceptions that we have about how the world works. Because otherwise, it sounds like we're maybe harping on little minutia of theory or that our practice is simply to like critique people, other leftists in the DSA and like maybe just call people Democrats or whatever. When I think that like we, you and I have managed separately and then together to sort of come up with a, I think a, a framework of understanding the world and the beginning, like the embryonic sense of what would be necessary to change the world under vastly different conditions that people have done it in the past with some similarities too. So it makes sense for us, I think, to take a beat to stop. And I, I personally, I need it myself because people know if they listen to the last Antifada episode, especially the bonus that I'm, uh, yeah, I'm going through something right now. You know, I'm not losing heart per se, but a lot of things that have happened over the last couple of few years have made me progressively start to think more about and, and question my own presuppositions. So this is a good chance, I think, for both of us to sit down and, uh, as you like to say, nail it down. Yeah. Nail it down. Uh, yeah. For me, it's, I, I'm beyond the crisis of, of faith. I've been in so the, the so what period for most <laughs> of the rise of the current left, which yeah. has served me both well and poorly. Um, uh, it served me well to not get swept up in the immediate uh, uh, kind of fervors that people got into i mean I, the, the the most obvious one was during may uh, of 2020 during the beginnings of the floyd uh uprising rebellion movement etc and i always list those because i think it's all of those and none of those it's like yeah. and it's also it's one thing but it's also not one thing it's like mm-hmm. various tendencies and counter tendencies working with and against each other right um and then ending in a giant mess and like a reconsolidation and uh, political scene that's probably more retrograde now than it was previous. Not that that's the fault of the uprising or the fault even of like the most bad faith actors there, but this so is the, a, yeah. The tendencies in the U.S. left that I thought were halted by Trump 
um, were actually exacerbated by them. And the moment that there was no need for a, quote, anti-fascist popular front, which I always thought was a mistake in the first place. Yeah. Um, which I think is a I think that was the thing that even people who are in tendency to agree with me when I was like, I'm not scared of of white nationalists, you know, like um, I know them. I've met them like you know irl i'm not afraid of them and the way you guys are yes they can they can hurt people very very surely but this idea we're descending into a civil war they're going to like they're going to just walk in and place the military leadership like that is not happening and and this gets us to our first uh our our first preposition and i think this is like most of what i do um this is your wording, but I agree with it. The social world is mystified, but discernible through science. So mm. before I start launching into this, what yeah. do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, uh, I mean, the, the first pass of that would be, uh, again, a criticism uh, of others on the left. You know, some good hearted people, some smart people who, as we've talked about in the past, have fallen into mm-hmm especially with the failure of the Bernie movement into a sort of conspiracism, which as we know, as we've talked about, is separate from believing in true conspiracies that actually do exist. But conspiracism uh, basically argues it's a left and right phenomenon that there's like a shadowy cabal behind the scenes that's running everything Um, or that, you know, everything's an op and that the CIA or the FBI is behind anything or that ultimately we're all just being duped at all times. I think what what's how why I reject that is that we have I think through Marx's mature theory uh, through the theory of uh, alienation and fetishization an understanding of the way in which in capitalist society the true social relations uh, the, the locus of production that is the locus of exploitation and domination um, that entire process becomes obscured to us it becomes. Um, something that's mystified, something that we can't obtain. But then that sort of like first and primary mystification starts to turn into all sorts of different ones. And when we on the left or we as communists, we as Marxists, we as whatever, uh, start to argue that power is so obscured or that the actors are so far removed and so powerful um, and that everything is an op, all of a sudden we end up in a powerless position when when I talk about science, you know, in, in that first principle, the world is discernible through science. That doesn't mean anything necessarily grand faluting. What it means is that it takes actually getting down and looking up the, at the logic of our social system and the way that it works in order to brush aside that mysticism. It takes something as something like if you're reading the New York Times, you know, you could pick it up or, or reading uh, the New York Post or whatever, you could pick it up. And you could say, this is all ruling class bullshit and just throw it in the fucking trash. But the more interesting move, the more discerning move, the move that I think is powerful for us and helps us. And the one that I try to do is to read between the lines, of course, and see that, in fact, there is a true social reality that's being presented in this ideological form. It takes us and our critical awareness and our thoughts uh, and uh, science in order to look through those mystifications and understand what is actually real in the falsifications. And without that, you're stuck again in a mode where everything is bullshit. Nothing is real. Everything's an op. And then we're powerless. You know, we might as well just suffer silently 
um, and and pull back from politics at that point. So that's that's kind of what I mean by it. So I'm going to pick apart what, what uh, some of the things that I see in there when we focus in on science and some of the stuff of what you said, um, because these these are related to this principle, but they might end up being additional principles. Um, one, I, I have three kinds of errors that I think are, well, there's different kinds of determinisms that emerge uh, over and over and over again in Marxism. And, and I'm going to caveat this when when I say determinism, I'm not worried about individual free will or determination. In fact, I think that question, even in philosophy, is useless. Mm. It is not ultimately answerable. And if the answer is there is no free will, then literally having the discussion is not anything we can control. So shut the fuck up, <laughs> which you can't do because you have no free will. So, um, yeah. so, so, so I always use that to point out that most people at least believe in agency, even if they don't believe in counter causal free will, mm. that's related to science, but we're going to bracket that out because it's mm. not useful politically. I'm just mm. going to throw that out there. Um, economism uh, is a word that's often misused now on the left, and I blame Mac Metnair for this. Um, uh, originally, in, in left-wing circles, it was used by Lenin to mean focus on immediate economic um, benefits, uh, such as money incentives, as opposed to things that built actual revolutionary politics and by that we don't mean like forcing people to revolution through miserationism we meant literally dual power um which while is a concept more used actually it's more used by right-wingers than left-wingers who just don't call it that hmm. um like if you look at most of the religious movements in the middle east some of which are very right-wing uh, both jewish and islamicist you will often find that they have dual power mode models which means they operate both within and outside of the state with both in, in state institutions and outside of it muslim brotherhood hezbollah hamas yeah, yeah. true torah judaism i mean there's a bunch of them like mm. it, 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 this is a common in the middle east the reason why it's easy with religious groups is because class collaboration funding forum is easier mm. um but uh, economism and the way Lenin used it was just favoring immediate economistic fixes so just higher wages over anything that would actually build workers power mm. um so it's come to mean actually economic determinism mm. um, which is the belief that the production the the mode of production sets the material conditions of reproduction in so much that um if we just maintain a moral position or whatever through the development of the modes of production, we will eventually end up in um, uh, communism. Now, yeah. the only people who really believe this now, uh, there's kind of two different forms of it. There's economism through accelerationism, mm. uh, which is an immiserationist. Mm -hmm. And then there's kind of like the the even though Edward Bernstein rejected this term, there's the Bernsteinian economism, which is actually whether people say it or not, common amongst the DSA, hmm. that if you do, do develop productive forces, particularly through control of things like the currency, you will be able to set your social policy through economic reforms like currency manipulation. Hmm. 
Um, now, what is interesting about this is one form of this economism is diametrically opposed to the other error, which is political determinism. Mm. I'll get to that in a second. And um, and the other form of this economism actually becomes identical to it. So this mm. is this is this is this is why I see there's three, but there might be more than three. Um, sure. So political determinism can go two ways. One is conspiracism, is what you're talking about, mm. and the other is the belief that all we have to do is assume, is believe in something different and assume control of the apparatuses of power. And by the difference in our belief, we will be able to organize things in a different way. Right. And the and what is bra- and this is believed commonly by social democrats but it's also commonly believed by anarchists the the, mm. the david graeber uh, and ringro book i think is also politically determinist in the extreme mm. um why is this a problem for marxism and marxism as a science now marx didn't have a particularly robust notion of probability in a way that we can because a lot of developments in probability theory and its application to sociology and social development and anthropology were not understood in the 19th century. There um, were a couple of authors right in the 1970s who did the probabilistic theory of trying to understand political. What were the names of them? I haven't read it. Oh yeah, um, uh, it's it far, was, French. Uh, they're no, it's far, they're Middle Eastern. It's far June. Um, it's the beginning of a kind of physics, the laws of chaos, I believe, is what it was mm. called. Uh, and. Yeah, um, um, yeah, Farjun and Mockover. And Mockover, yeah. So, um, so, and they what they tried to do is um, incorporate modern probability theory into into Marx's math. Marx's math is based off of accounting. Um, once you actually, if you understand classical accounting, like all the stuff in Capital that seems weird as far as the math actually starts to make sense. Huh. Um, so. So what's the issue? They didn't get into this part, but what's the issue with the science? We have to, we, we, we can believe that people can believe whatever they want. All right. Like, like, and I think whether or not you're to go back to that question, I was going to bracket out whether or not you're a determinist or not. Individual actors can believe things that will never catch on and social groups. And the reason why they don't catch on is material constraints. Mm-hmm. So we are neither economistic in that we think the economy will purely do it, nor politically determinist mm-hmm. in our approach to this. We approach this scientifically by that in which we mean we look at societies that have existed in the past. And Marx tries to do this in a very basic way. That's what the modes and, and relations, that last part often gets dropped, right. of production are about. And then we say, okay, what conditions that we want have existed elsewhere in history? So, for example, for most of human history, we have been relatively horizontally hierarchical. And you go, no, we haven't. Uh, If you are looking at um, pre-agricultural and small-scale agricultural societies, yes, we have. Hmm. Like, And that is the majority of, you know, humans um, before about 6,000 years ago. Um. So then we have to look, okay, well, they believe different things. That's what the Wingrow and, and Graeber project. But also, I think we have to look in this they don't do at the things that made those beliefs useful. 
And so when I talk about like beliefs in, in relation to science, I mean, we have to look at like why certain beliefs, not if they're true, truth, truth value is not what we're looking at here, mm-hmm. but like what, you know, this is what most people mean by ideology. Even what do people believe that will materially help them in their daily life survive under the social and material constraints to understand that we have to understand the social and material constraints. The insight from Marx, the basic insight is, is twofold. One that scarcity and surplus really do drive a lot of our social organization. And two, that this leads to classes which creates conflicts between classes. Mm-hmm. And that is the primary driver of what we think of as history. And the reason why all this priest, you know, all this early human anthropology doesn't seem historical to us is that in some real sense, since there are no classes and no real differentiations, it is not history in the way that Marx would think about it. Like it's, right. it is a prehistory right. in a real sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we, we can identify like what you're talking about. This conspiracism, well, that's a type of political determinism. That's that, and it's like the most vulgar, worst kind. Yeah, yeah. Um, you believe that there's a power elite that is setting everything up in the shadows, and they have near omnipotent control. All right, that last part's the important part. It's not that mm-hmm. conspiracies don't happen, but the idea that everything is like a CIA op. Given what I know about the CIA, just isn't believable <laughs> to me because while there are plenty of CIA operations, mo- a, a lot of them are just basically incompetent. Yeah. And also, why would you assume if the CIA could do it that other powers in the capitalist order couldn't? Right. And then, you know, because it's like, well, then you haven't, this whole easy explanation that you have becomes very complicated very quickly if right. you actually follow the logic through at all. Um, and it, it becomes like that particular method of understanding the world uh, then not only makes you powerless, but also makes you look to the wrong sources for um, for the misuse or the use, the application of power. Right? It could turn you just as easily into a um, stoner folding up the dollar bill to show you like the mushroom head and that represents the, the Federal Reserve conspiracy. Or an uh, anti semite who thinks that or an anti semite or or like a vulgar um sort of campist, you know, to mm. yeah. I mean, we definitely see all those tendencies, right? So that's one thing we can say by science what we what we don't mean. Uh, uh but let's talk about what we do mean, and I talked a little bit about that. Um, I'm not here to tell people that their that their beliefs about um uh metaphysics is true or false Mm. right and people will ask me about that it's not i don't think those are questions that i can answer through science um i'm not sure anybody can to be honest like there's some that can't even describe we don't even understand consciousness let alone what's beyond right if if anything (laughs) right i mean consciousness being a hard problem has left like if you talk about like in the new atheist days like people who would literally just try to deny that consciousness existed because it created such a problem uh for stuff like well neurology equals brain states and when you actually look at that uh maybe it either does but after you've done the thing which doesn't make any sense or you don't actually know where the locus of 
of consciousness is from and it and matches very much very much with a pharmaceutical turn in uh you know mental health science right right I mean, and then that's you know obviously a historically specific and historically determined thing but we'll right. get to historical specificity. right you know just like behaviorism match when we didn't have any of that and so and we had no real theory of consciousness in either so we're only going to focus on modifying behavior yeah uh, and then and behavioralism also goes along with taylorism too you know right they're, yeah. and they're and those kind of go with like incipient fordism and like the 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 second industrial revolution i mean this is what i think this is an, uh, like these are examples of what i think i mean when i mm. when i say science which is like understanding that these things are produced imminently um, through the not just the mode of production, but the very specific um, coordinates of class power and the technical apparatus, but also the political apparatus of society and global society at any given time, any given point in history. The science is, is the process of abstraction, of pulling away from all of those various different epiphenomena or like mm -hmm. instantiations of a central logic that exists at the core of it. So, yeah, so the way I think about this is is what ideas, regardless of their truth value, okay, so this is, you know, this is almost pragmatic, um, are most likely to catch on as either an ideology or a research program, all right, an ideology here, I mean, as a justification for the way things are, mm. or as a way we're looking at the way things are to do certain things. Mm. Um, it is not that the economic mode determines the existence of those ideas. It is that only certain ideas are going to flourish and spread in yeah. certain economic modes. Because they're adequate to how one has to understand a world in which mystification exists. And not just mystification exists, but mystification is in a sense hardwired into the social reality. Right. And let's talk about why mystification is necessary. Okay. Um, and I, this is gonna, I admit this has some priors or some assumptions in it based off my studies of anthropology that roughly correlate with, with Marxism and anarchism, but maybe a more specific than that. Um, humans are primates. We have multiple primate tendencies. If you compare us to our nearest primatological cousins, which are mm. going to be the great apes, and particularly bonobos and chimps and then gorillas and, and orangutans. Um, despite what Graeber says, I think calling it racist to look at our relationship to the closest species to us is ridiculous. Um, I don't recall him saying that. I probably, if I read that in that book, I probably tried to just get that out of my consciousness. Yeah, well, I don't know if it was <laughs> David right or Wingrove, but it was, yeah. it was a whole like, why don't we talk about primitive societies as related to modern things as opposed to... to to monkeys and that uh racist and i'm like only if you assume that primates are actually significantly lower than us in development which i don't mm. um so one thing i though i could i can tell you is even amongst chimp bands hierarchical modes and chimps would be the most hierarchical of these groups chimps and gorillas and the least would be orangutans and bonobos um would are not hierarchical groups are not super high hierarchy and there's um, hierarchical challenges are common. All right. And if you look at like bonobos, there's hardly any hierarchy. The hierarchy hierarchy is temporary. Mm. Um, and if you look at the development of 
human features, um, most of which resemble primates and adolescents, we have evidence that in our self-domestication, mm. we have favored horizontal um, kinds of structures, meaning that we tend to be cooperative. Mm -hmm. We tend to, at least in, at least within our small bands, uh, be relatively egalitarian, mm -hmm. even somewhat gender egalitarian. And by that, I mean that whether it might be gender roles in a society and most early societies they generally aren't strongly enforced mm. um that's not true across the board but we do have a, you know we, we do have evidence for a fair amount of that uh, we also have counter evidence i mean all this stuff there's counter tendencies too um but these tend to be the predominant tendencies meaning that we aren't like ants and that we have a highly art lobsters and we have yeah. a highly, <laughs> that's a throwback right there yeah. that's a clap back <laughs> that we have a highly a tendency towards highly hierarchical structures and when we do have a hierarchy it tends to be temporary until mm. agriculture mm -hmm. and competition between agriculturalists and pastoralists not so much hunt, uh hunter gatherers of any variety uh is when you start seeing the tendency to reinvest surplus yes into really rigid forms of hierarchy that become cast and class yeah, yeah cast and class become inheritable that's really not something you see until about ten thousand years ago All right humans have been around for a million years yeah like i like that's what i want to get get that through your thick head when we talk about what people are right yeah uh, <laughs> that just even even the the knowledge of that i i think anthropologic that anthropologic knowledge is kind of a revolutionary fact like mm -hmm. one that it, that that I I find ex extremely inspiring, and one that you know we so many people lead with defenses of Stalin. You know, maybe we could lead with defenses of different ways of living. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, for me, it's it, the one good thing in uh, the dawn of everything, and people know that I have a a lot of anger at that book. But mm. the one good thing in in the dawn of everything is it does remind us that most of human history. And not just hunter-gatherer human history are what we really should say is immediate return hunter-gatherers because mm. hunter-gatherers with surplus often do develop class societies. Mm. Um, but that that also there have been cities and agricultural settlements when they're not in high competition and not in a lot of stress or in particular environments that also don't develop into highly hierarchical forms. It is right. specific to... Like there's a reason why, and part of this is geographic, why cities and class society like we think of comes out of North Africa and West Asia mm. and like spreads across and then there are, you know, there are concurrent developments to that, like in the Indus Valley, mm -hmm. uh, where there aren't strong evidence of of high hierarchical societies yeah and we and and on the t the the temporary nature of hierarchies uh they mm -hmm. they show evidence of of very if not rigid hierarchies, at least of like a um, a temporary social division of labor that arises not quite spontaneously, but uh, with seasonality in the construction of large, uh, basically temporary cities or ritual cities that peoples from thousands of miles around would travel to every year. And you'd create a sort of an entire society, an entire civilization 
uh, relatively centralized one with people laboring and, and other people uh, supervising that labor. And then that would break apart again. And then you would see the sort of immediate return, hunter gathering return. It shows, I think, the suppleness of human creativity and our create our ability to create society. Uh, and, you know, the um, the real bizarre sort of uh, what they would call um, getting stuck. You know, the fact that we got stuck with a particular form of social relations, a particular form of hierarchy uh, that now, you know, as we'll talk about later, has basically colonized everything. Um, right. And and we struggle not just to break free of it, but even understand that an alternative is possible. And right. this is where anthropological science then comes in and can help us. Yeah. And I, I actually do take a particular side in the anthropology wars. And it's not the side that a lot of leftists tend to take because I don't think the leftist side is often as leftist as people think it is. For example, mm. I think that the work done by uh, Robert P. Edgerton and Six Societies, which was really aimed at the noble savage mm. myth, but also interestingly proved. And aimed at extreme cultural relativism amongst anthropologists that basically human beings will accept anything from a society mm. if it is their norm. Um, what uh, what I think Edgerton and then later people like um, like uh, the review Kilbride really show is that social practices such as like foot uh, such as um, foot binding, enforced malnutrition, uh, general mutilation of any gender, uh, highly uh, overuse of intoxicants, not any use of intoxicants because all humans use intoxicants, but mm -hmm. overuse of intoxicants, certain kinds of tribal warfare, certain kinds of cannibalism. And I, I'm, I'm putting asterisks there because there, there are kinds where this doesn't have this actually have traumatic effect. And one of the things that a lot of people think this is a conservative argument, I think it's actually not because I think what you see and that share all those things together is that, except for maybe like overuse of of uh, of intoxicants, is that these societies do things that that are strategically enforcing a hierarchy through some 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 extreme form of violence, and people mm. just don't thrive under those conditions mm -hmm. even if you think it's normal in most societies they show stress levels and indicate that they know that it's wrong um you know there's two competing boogeymen here and there's mm -hmm. of course the rousseauian concept of like uh, of the noble savage then there's of course the war of one against all the hobbesian vision right and and those two the those largely not completely but track to like what's called the left or the right today when you know i think as we'll argue later because i i have a principle about the way in which capital kind of generates its own one-sided critique neither of those uh are scientific in the sense that they get to like the heart of the matter in uh modern class society but they're also not scientific in that they don't match with what we understand of ancient or pre-historic human history um, and yet these two are like opposite sides of like an internal discourse within capitalist political society about what human beings are, what we have been, and ultimately what we can become. Right. And our, and our, our job is to actually imminently critique those things and say imminently just I'm using jargon there. What I mean is that we start from those principles and we try to uh, conceptualize where they're coming from, 
uh, what is plausibly true about them, but then undermine them on their own basis. Uh, that is, uh, as, as I understand it, the scientific task, the task of Marxism, if you will. Yeah, and I think one of the things we have to admit, and, and this puts me at odds with the Althusserians in the world, is we do have a biological species being. Yeah. Um, and that it's multifarious. It can manifest in many. This this is why Marx is different than say like, oh, we know what human nature is. We don't actually know. Yeah, all of what human nature is because we're gathering we're, evidence right every day. <laughs> right, but also like, our, human nature is going to manifest in different ways given its social and material constraints. Right, not just our belief constraints. Although that I do think that matters more than some Marxists, some other Marxists think it does. But I also think that it really changes like for example um the reason why this the six societies book was not often read as like oh there's there is a way in which we can know what human beings are and they're fairly egalitarian because these forces of domination make most people in these societies unwell uh the immediate response to that um so for example uh Richard Swedener's Thinking Through Culture as a response to Six Society says that you shouldn't ever do cross-cultural com comparison because mm. basically you should take each culture as completely too generous and self-contained. Now this this goes back to Foucault in a mm. lot of ways, but it, it's not just that. Um, you know, this is this is a very ancient debate. The reason why I think you're right is we we viewed this Six Societies book at the time as a battle between left and right and the assertion that there was any human nature at all was a right-wing assertion right and we have to demystify that and say no humans are humans are in whatever else you might think they're going to be because there's certain like i said there's certain questions that i don't think we can answer mm -hmm. but we are at a base level biological creatures mm -hmm. um we should not i don't know a creature there i don't know a creature on earth that is totally culturally determined. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of mammals that we know have cultures. We know that rails mm -hmm. have cultures. We know that great apes have cultures. We know that dolphins have cultures. Yeah, whales have cultures. Dogs probably, dogs and wolves have cultures because mm -hmm. of the difference of the way they act in captivity and outside of it. Um, Culture is part of our biology. Right. Um, and it makes sense in that what is culturally adaptive is probably what's going to be either, either neutral are beneficial in any given environment. Mm -hmm. Think about humans, and in this way, we are kind of like insects. Is we have a lot of control through the the ways we figured out how to manipulate ourselves socially in our environment. Yeah, and, our and, domination and this, of nature, right? Um, which we can choose to be less domineering or whatever, but but we do like many other animals, and I, I do point out because this is also against this like misanthropic tendency to view humans as unique in this. Like, no, mm. like termites can destroy an environment. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Very uh, true. Uh, Viruses can destroy an environment. Right. Um, the, we, what Marx saw that gave us the possibility of actually determining our history was not that we could just do whatever we wanted, mm. but that we had enough control our, over our environment to start to figure out how to prioritize certain tendencies in ourselves over others. And by doing that, 
we could actually return to certain kinds of things with the advantages of these other periods that we've gone through. I mean, one of the uh, Daniel from what is politics is kind of a, an acquaintance of mine that I, whose shows I kind of like, but one of the points he makes, it's really dead on is that it's easier for us today as modern human beings, because of the way uh, urban life is flattening and unfortunately someone alienating, but also very, very horizontal for the people you have contact with mm. because the class status has gotten so severe mm. that actually we experience the world in a, in a relatively egalitarian mm. way. Because where because the people who live outside of like the everyday e relatively egalitarian sphere are so far away they're right just, we don't we so just far don't... away we just don't encounter them and then this is like the common problem when when people think about rich and poor in this country is they're thinking about when they think of rich people they think of like the local gentry who owns five car dealerships and he seems astoundingly wealthy uh when of course as we know the people in davos and the people in london and the people jetting off you know to mm -hmm. business conferences all over the world are the true you know, true power source, or at least the, the people who are accruing the social surplus and to an extent that it's possible for individuals to do so, uh, funneling and channeling the social surplus into various different, uh, you know, uh, industries and sectors of the economy. But those people, as you say, are, are, are invisible. And so this is, this is like, uh, when we talk about ideology or we talk about mystification, mm -hmm. this is like the, this is what makes this plausible is the fact that everyday life for almost every person, say in the United States, does appear to be relatively A, egalitarian and relatively B, meritocratic. Because you you see people vaguely within your same social sphere rising and falling based on various, seemingly based on various tendencies that they have. Right. You know, this personal is, tendencies or um, right. social capital or whatever you want to call it. Well, this is not a scientific statement. This is my ad hoc statement for why class politics often makes more sense in richer areas of the country because that's like like in major cities like the coastal cities because that's where encounters between real inequality can sometimes happen mm -hmm. um and basically you know where the classes mingle is like new york california and las vegas right like, <laughs> and increasingly south florida right um <clears throat> it, it, one of the things I, I i i think that we have to pull apart in this though is we we often accept ourselves from these tendencies. Mm. And then there's another thing that we do um, in that we tend to do a whole to part or part to whole fallacy. So we tend to assume that our experience can represent the whole of the experience of X and mm. leftists are terrible. At this. Oh this my is God, like, yeah. this is every time I mention something that's like a general rule that someone's like, I don't expect, I'm like, that's not the point. Your individual experience is actually cannot be factored into a generalization unless the generalization is just wrong and where right. this where this ends up hitting the hardest in terms of the left and the divisions within it is you know the the way in which um mar labor market stratification and education has created largely what we call white collar and blue collar work and so you mm -hmm. often have people who are true are proletarians you know who are who are working with their computers or working in service uh, in the service sector, parts of the retail sector or whatever, who are trying to generalize their particular experience across and then vice versa as well, too. 
Right. I think, like, I'm going to call out specific trends. We talk about the PMC class stuff, right? And mm-hmm. I hate it. Yeah. And it's not just because it's on Marxist, all right? Um, that, like, it could be on Marxist and correct. Sure. My problem with PMC is when I go and break it down, particularly in the way it's used now, but even in the way Aaron Reich used it, Aaron Reich realized some of the problems with it with, towards the end of her life. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give her that credit. Mm-hmm. But is that it's actually incredibly nebulous. And internally contradictory. So sometimes mm-hmm. it refers to management that's cartelled. Sometimes it refers to cartelled workers, but only cartel workers that are white collar. It ignores cartel workers that are blue collar, but assumes they don't have like me, right? <laughs> um, and 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 then lastly, uh, sometimes it means elites, which is the top, say five percent of fields who have a lot of power, and sometimes mm. it means anyone who could possibly be in that elite through cartelization which is anyone with a fucking degree right those are massively different social categories but the 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 the, it's floating between them and when people it's like when i talk about workers so i've told people worker is a relationship like working is something that you do and labor is something to do to be a worker means you work for someone else it is a relational thing which Mm -hmm. also means that while concepts like class habitus or class background of use less academic language are important, like because it sets your framework for what's normal, mm-hmm. um, it is not your class. Right. And so, you know, when someone's like, I grew up working class, therefore I am working class, uh, even though I don't think professors are working class and I am now a professor, mm-hmm. not calling out names, but I've literally heard this. <laughs> um, that's, that is internally inconsistent. So it doesn't just matter. People think I'm a Marx purist. And I, yeah, when we're talking about Marxism, I am because I want us to be clear on what Marx or leader Marx has meant. Right. But that's not a truth criterion. Just because Marx said something doesn't mean it's real. Agreed. That should be up there in the first principles, maybe up above even the mm-hmm. one that we had before. Right. The, the issue is some of the answers are attempts to fix this. And the left is really, really bad at this for reasons that make sense. All right. And I'll, I'll give some left examples of that about why we critique this, but how this ties into this first principle. Um, think about, okay. So we say, the, well, the PMC thing is catching on for a reason. Mm-hmm. It is describing tendencies that are real, which is high strata differentiation that are effectively experienced as class differentiation Mm. between between kinds of work marx calls this alienation uh of worker between worker Mm -hmm. where there's competition between sectors and even individual workers in ways that separate them from that make them identify with other elements of of work structurally speaking right um but i'm also going to gonna say we have to cut against this in another way someone's class position is only going to tell us what their probabilistic politics are going to be because of their interest Mm. but an individual does not actually have to see things in terms of their immediate or even long-term interest right yeah so that's why like when people like oh well you know there's a lot of anarchists do this when marxist has always been led by by certain people and who are not workers um being vague about what workers were but in in some sense they're right marx Engels. i've said that before in my life like 10 15 years ago and it's it is true yeah all right but that's not explanatory yeah like it actually does not tell you like 
because it is if if you're if you're uh as i have done in the past in previous lifetime using it as a betrayal as a betrayal narrative like a stab in the back narrative it's very convenient and i think there is i think a lesser form of that argument should be considered about the problems of people with skills who into like the whole merger thesis does mm-hmm. assume, for example, the socialists are not uniquely are consistently from the working class as mm-hmm. part of the merger thesis. Even Marx talks about that. They're just elements of other classes that see their future in proletarianization. That's right. also going back to the manifesto. Um, but let's let's really break this down. There is a weak sense of this in which, for example, if you've gone through academic training. You are trained to think in certain ways that compartmentalizes the world in certain ways and views certain kinds of relations as acceptable, uh, which is like there. I mean, universities are not just capitalistic. They're also run on medieval lines with weird yeah. guilds and shit. And and uh, that treats you for example to ask certain questions and not others to take certain things in your field is given and not others it also leads you to believe in the possible in the possibility of certain kinds of meritocracy even though mm-hmm. like there's no evidence anywhere else because the fiefdoms in in uh academia until until the la- until the neoliberalization of administration were largely done by doing work in the field and getting a certain amount of accolades from people you saw as your peers. Right. Um, this actually does train you in ways that are limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does lead to a tendency towards things we might call like white collar blindness or not, like not understanding what workers immediate needs are. Um, even if you are also a worker because right. you have this training conversely, that is also true for workers. Yeah, of course. Um, there's all kinds of training you get in the social environment of being a worker that, do, that does not help you. And I think that's specific to some of our why, why we periodize this. Like, yes, the basic rules of capital haven't fundamentally changed from 1750 to now. Right. But the organization of how the uh, how that those basic rules are managed has changed dramatically at least six times mm-hmm. and again getting back to this thing you were talking about about how we're often limited by the ideas that are easy to think in that time period there's a tendency of leftists to look at a a particular social arrangement in their particular form of capital and then eternalize it yeah. So, for example, like Sweezy and Co. in the 50s, thinking that monopoly capital, a la Fordism, had ended the capitalist con- contradiction. And all we really needed to do was take the community heads of society. Right. Uh, an idea that really actually began earlier than them, but seemed obvious and near universal mm-hmm. in the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now we see neoliberalism as eternal in the same way and literally as, as it's we, in its decomposition right <laughs> and i think uh there's a there's a piece called the the critique of neo-feudal reason that points this out yeah new that, left review uh like six months ago right yeah um that that talks about um how we are now in that we see neoliberalism failing and dying and declining that we're now 
positing apocalyptic are like ways out of capitalism that aren't even particularly coherent, like neo feudal, like techno neo feudalism, or mm. you know, woke neo feudalism, or whatever. That's Eugene uh, Mazarov. Mar- yeah, Mazarov. Yeah, Mar- yeah. Mar- that th- that's a great. Really, that's great. one of the best pieces. In I, I opened that years. up again recently, like just a few days ago, because I was interested. Uh, actually, for last week's episode, because somebody had asked me about why the recent Brenner article in Lou Left Review was so um, so controversial, and I looked back at that article because I wanted to see where again Brenner and others landed. Brenner specifically landed in this uh, neo feudalism debate. Yeah, I'm actually surprised by that, given his theory of how capitalism developed. Um, yeah, what he ultimately ends up saying, Brenner, um, and I guess if I'm anything, I'm in many cases a, a Brennerite. Um, what he basically says is that there are certain tendencies of feudal society that are returning and certain ones that are like have been emblematic of capitalist society that have been fading, uh, but is not at all yet uh, a new mode of production. Yeah. Well, so for me, he's actually agreeing with with uh the critique of feudal reason but i was saying like yeah but we do need to talk about tendencies i i agree in some of that for example we have seen profitability prices now lead to rentierism that we've never seen before yeah this is his fundamental argument is that and and this is one that i think in the first principles we're going to address which is that in when the motor of accumulation has has broken down when things especially in the capitalist core start to become more zero-sum when there's not the profits that go around all sorts of aberrant, what seems to be aberrant tendencies, political and economic, uh, start to arise because you don't have the, of course, growing pie any longer that can be spread around. Right. And so his argument is that it's like a deeply like global, uh, you know, p- political economic issue at, at heart, which is manifesting itself in these ways that we see as abnormal or aberrant, but are in fact, you know, the workings of a capitalist system in crisis, in, in right. deep crisis. I mean, Bonapartism is like another example of that, but like, yeah. Um, so, how do we then, you know, when we think about this terms in, in terms of science, I mean, we can move on from this principle in a second, but how do we think about this in a way that is illuminating? Because one of the things I will say, Marxism as a science has been a way to cut off thought mm-hmm. for a long time because it doesn't define science. Um, often it, it tends to take Marx's predictions as inevitable. And if Marxism is a science in that sense, it's been disproven. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and end notes, of course, has been really good at the, on this as, as have many, many others. I mean, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, the Frankfurt school was on, on this, I mean, their answer to it was kind of ridiculous, but they weren't, they weren't totally wrong. Um, the, the, the issue I have is in Marx. Marx is a scientific thinker, but like if you look at his individual predictions, they shift throughout his life. Like uh-huh. he predicts the fall of capital in 1850. Like oh, that, yeah. yeah, that he didn't happen. The, the crisis of 1853 comes, and he mm-hmm. says, "Oh shit, capitalism didn't end." And then he spends basically the next the rest of his life trying to figure out why you know that the final crisis didn't happen and why the proletariat you know didn't organize itself. Right, and, and and that's capitals volume one, two, and three. Right. You know? Which, you know, there, there's not a, an Althusserian epistemic shift in Marx, but there is a shit happened. We need to figure out what this shit is, yeah. what we were wrong about. I mean, another example of that is like Marx's endorsement of the commune comes with all these caveats, including yeah. like dictatorship of the proletariat, which leads to all kinds of problems later. Yeah. But um, 
as but we the, lose the very specific definition of dictatorship right. that that existed in the, the specific time. debate in which that is happening and with mm. with with uh the 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 partisans of louis Blanqui too yes like, yeah like there's a whole lot of uh of uh of this going on so we have to so when we say science we we don't mean that we're going to inevitably know the outcome what and I don't also mean that Marxism is a, my, a magic and unique scientific methodology, mm-hmm. uh, a la, say, say, Lukash, because when the more I study Lukash, they're, they're, the methodology actually isn't clear what it is at all. Like, mm-hmm. it's not a method. It's like mm-hmm. it basically becomes a, a kind of uh, whatever the organ of the working class does is true because the working class does it. All right. Um, and and also, as I specifically say the organ of the working class, because early on, it's the working class itself. Later on, he refines that to the working class party or as the, history overtakes the, the, the development of his theory, you know, right. as he uh, accommodates himself to the counter revolution, the yeah. Stalinist turn, you know, right. It's him theorizing his own environment, him, uh, him theorizing uh, history and him changing, you know, as we all should do. Right. Maybe not yeah. into Stalin's lap, but he was presented with various different choices and he took them as we all do. Right. And and so I think that is something to really look at. Um, we don't mean what makes Marxism unique or what makes communism unique is two things. One is our goal. Mm. Uh, and I think I think that's the other thing that is fundamentally lost sight of all the time. Our goal is not relative inequality. Our goal is not social goods. Mm-hmm. Our goal is not jobs for all. Jobs for all. These are all maybe things we might use to achieve our goal. But mm-hmm. They are not our goal. Our goal is not even, I mean, it depends on whether or not you're a Marxist or an anarchist, but it's not even to immediately bring about every element of our goal because we don't think we can immediately yeah. bring it about. Um, which was all of Marx's reactions to the commune in 1871, which he heralded, but also saw as uh, not in keeping with uh, the possibilities of that particular moment in history. Right. And the um, development of the working class as a political subject. This is a living political project and a research project. And there's two fundamental assumptions is our goal is to remove class and if and comma caste, if you see caste as a separate, I actually don't, I think. Class as separate from caste is a is a mystification of capitalism. Mm. But if you mean like class as legally defined, then yes, caste mm. is a separate thing. And legally here means either by a state or by a or by some other social force like a quote religion that can really have have a lot of power. Those are those are our two assumptions that the conflicts between groups of people drive a lot of our modern development they they their why social reproduction is the way it is and isn't just it isn't just organically unified a la darkheim mm-hmm. and and that our goal is to end that mm-hmm. it is to it is not necessarily to I, you know this is where maybe i'm not like an anarchist i don't want to remove all hierarchy in every situation all the time yeah i want hierarchy to be recallable justified and the power to do so to be egalitarianly spread out yep um yeah I that makes us that. different right from that's why communists are not just socialists and that's what the socialist and communist project are not just like social welfare liberalism we do have 
a different goal and we have a different methodology, those, those require a different research project and a different, and a different set of like axiomatic practices. And this gets us to maybe talk about one. Uh, I think this is, this, this, this doesn't immediately seem like a practice, but it actually kind of is. And I'm going to let you talk about it because you're going to write it down. Mm. The proletarian condition is an objection to be overcome, not just valorized people. Yes. Um, but also it is a freedom to be realized. What do you mean by that? Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. It's cheap, there's a ton of content, and it would mean everything to us. So thank you, and we'll see you behind the paywall. <laughs>